Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. This week, we're following our usual policy of taking a holiday break from recording, editing, and publishing a podcast every single week. What we have for you is an encore presentation of one of the earliest episodes of the Contracting Officer Podcast called What is a Contracting Officer? This one's meant to give folks that are new to the government world some background into what a contracting officer does, how you become a contracting officer, and what the different types of contracting officers are. It's fun for me to listen to how much the sound quality and the content have both improved over the years since we released this episode. This was like episode nine, way at the beginning. You can tell it's a little bit dated because we mentioned the micro purchase threshold is $3,000. As of today, that threshold is $10,000. All right, here we go with the encore presentation of what is a contracting officer. Hey, Kevin, today we're going to answer the question, what is a contracting officer? The short answer is a contracting officer is someone who spends our tax dollars. There's a much more complicated long answer behind that, but in reality, it's someone who is constitutionally authorized to buy goods and services for the U.S. government. So if they're buying something, something's being bought for the, for the U.S. government somewhere, doesn't matter what agency, contracting officer is usually buying it. And we'll get into the nuance of, of how there are adjustments to that later. The long answer is that a contracting officer awards, administers, modifies, and terminates contract. And you can look it up in FAR 1.6 if you really want to see the detail of it. But with what they get is a delegated authority. And what that means is that they're delegated this authority by the head of the agency. And that delegated authority, they may be able to award contracts worth $1 million, contracts worth $5 million, contracts worth an unlimited amount based on getting approvals. So that's the longer answer. But the shorter answer is they spend our tax dollars. How's that? That's, that's perfect. The short answer was actually Kevin's short, so not, not super short. That's true. I'm, I'm not known for being a unverbose, if that's even a word. So what is a contracting officer and why the CEO, why are CEOs leery of interacting with industry? And why do they take their time awarding contracts? And, and why do you hear the it depends answer so much? So in other words, let's dig in deeper into you know, what really is a contracting officer? What's their, what are their authorities and those kind of things? So right. now we get into the actual FAR reference here, because this is kind of fun. So for those of you who are driving, try and focus with me here. FAR 1.602. So Federal Acquisition Regulation Part 1.602, right up, right up front, they say a contracting officer, this is what they have to do. This is the standard by which a contracting officer is, is judged. It must ensure that all requirements of law, executive order, regulation, and all other applicable procedures, including clearances and approvals, have been met before they sign any government contract. So let's repeat that because that's really fun, right? All laws... All executive orders, because we all read those every day. I mean, you know, we get a we get a text from the president every day on the easy executive. to memorize. Exactly right. All the regulations, all the applicable procedures, which who knows how many there are, and then including all the clearance and approvals you have to get. So whenever a contracting officer signs a contract, and by the way, you want to read this. It's in FAR 1.602-1B. I mean, this is right out of the FAR. This is the standard. This is a far-reaching way of look at. Oh wow, the contracting officer is really responsible for basically checking every federal regulation before they spend their tax dollars. Yikes, right? So now that I've scared the crap out of you. Or, here's put, the other or put him to sleep by reading the yeah. FAR. I'm not sure so, which. So, so basically the idea is that they, they got to check everything. Now, think of it. When you're a, a brand new contracting officer and you read that paragraph and you think, wow, I, I can't. That's just, 
it's effectively an impossible standard to meet, right? Well, here's the good news. The next, very next paragraph, FAR 1.602-2, for those of you following along with the FAR, <laughs> which would be really a funny image, but it, it also says, in order to perform these responsibilities, contracting officers should be allowed wide latitude to exercise business judgment. So, so just that's, like that's where you get off just from from reading the book to actually thinking. That's that's what separates contracting officers right there is their ability to exercise that business judgment. Correct. So on one hand, you have the the, the far far as in the the adjective of the word the far reaching side of this is a very disciplined by the book standard. However, you have the other side of this is but we expect you to use business judgment. So so. For those of you who wonder, well, well, why is that important? Well, the cool thing about that, that's what makes being a contracting officer interesting, is you're balancing those two. The one hard extreme, you know, think of it in the right brain, left brain kind of thing. You have the one side, it's the, far, the first part is the left brain. It's like, this is very logical. This is absolutely, you must follow the regs. And then the other side is the right brain, where you have to use exercise, use an exercise business judgment. And that's why you get lots of different types of contracting officers. You get people like us who actually like this kind of work because there's so many variables within it. I mean, imagine you have this enormous, like, I don't know, what's the far up to? Probably 1,500 pages or something. <laughs> and all these different regulations that come with it. But then you get to be allowed wide latitude to exercise business judgment, to put the puzzle together for every acquisition. For how, how are you going to buy this? As long as you're within those laws, there's lots of, there are lots of different ways you can do this. So right. what this really comes down to is it gives the contracting officer the authority to judiciously choose from a wide variety of options. Yep. and. This is really what makes a contracting officer fun or being a contracting officer fun. Right. So let's, let's rewind a little and go back to that all applicable procedures, including clearances and approvals. All applicable procedures doesn't just mean the FAR. There's levels and levels of regulations below the FAR, depending on where you work. So if you're in DOD, you not only have the FAR, but you have the DFARs, the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulations. Then you have agency-specific supplements that, that get down to, to, to the nits of, of how things are done and approved at your agency. And depending on where you are, there may even be lower-level supplements below that. So it's not just one 1,500-page book that you have to, to follow. It could be multiple books, and hopefully they get smaller as they go down. And here it gets even more fun that you get below the agency level and you end up with, for example, Special Operations Command has their own. So if you're a contracting officer at Special Operations Command, you have the FAR, the main one, the one that applies to everybody in the federal government. Then you have the Department of Defense one. And then you have the Special Operations Command uh, supplement. So how do you become a contracting officer? Contracting officers are appointed by their agency head or, or a designee. And, and in my experience, it's usually the 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 top acquisition or contracting person is, is the one who gets to a point who has authority below them. The agency head themselves doesn't, doesn't usually do that, but I've, I've worked in large agency heads where, or large agency heads. I've worked in large agencies where, where there's many levels between, between those positions at a, at a small place, maybe the agency head does uh, maintain that, that authority. But, where you and I grew up at, at Wright Pat, where we started to to do that, the the uh, director of contracts for for the command was the one who issued the the warrants, right? Correct, and and that the authority to issue that warrant comes down again. You go you go up high enough, comes down through the Constitution, and then it ends up going to the to the uh, direct the Department of Defense 
and then it comes down to the Air Force, and then it's delegated to the down through the the all the different nuts and bolts down to this individual who's say a GS fifteen or an SES or somebody who's a director of contracts for that particular right. uh, department, and that's the person that gives the warrant. And the process, the process for how the you're you're appointed, it's not always the same, and it's not transferable from agency to agency. If you if you had a warrant at, at one agency and then went to work for another agency, they might not just hand you a warrant when you walk in the door. So the process to be considered a contracting officer isn't always easy or quick. You you have to prove yourself and they have to know you uh, before they hand you the authority to obligate the government. So your experience, your training, your education, your your overall judgment as perceived by, by the, uh, by the appointing officer. These are all things that, that are considered on, on whether, whether or not you have a chance to become a contracting officer. And something else to, to consider here is that it, like, like, like you said, it's different from each agency and it's necessarily different because some agencies spend a whole lot of money. Some agencies don't spend as much. So many have, some agencies have 800 contracting officers. Some have 16. I mean, it's, there's a lot of different animals. So for example, to get a warrant at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, there are a lot of what happens to be that's a headquarters for one of the acquisition offices there. So there are a lot of people, a lot of contracting people there and a lot of humongous programs. Like when you're buying an F-22 or a B-2, you're spending a lot of money, right? So in order for you to spend that kind of money, you, you're going to have the, the people giving you that, that authority to do so are going to need a whole lot more uh, trust in that you know what you're doing, right? And so not necessarily um, linear just to the amount of money that you spend, but realistically, how many other contracting people are there? So at a smaller base, what that means is that it may not be as complicated to get your warrant. Right. Um, and so then it goes into, this is a, that's perfectly into the, the level of authority that you're given. So contracting officers are appointed in writing on a specific form, a certificate of appointment, which the appointing officer has to sign it and it tells you how much authority you have. So you, you might have $500,000. You might be able to, to sign a contract or buy something worth $500,000 without any further approvals. It might be a million dollars. It might be $5 million. It might be unlimited. And depending on which agency you work for, unlimited may be, may be the rule because there's so few contracting officers. You may go through stages of a career where you're given a limited, very limited warrant to start with. And as you gain experience and trust, your delegation goes up until you're eventually an unlimited uh, warrant contracting officer. It, it's done differently in, in, in each, each place I've, I've worked at least. I'm sure for you too, Kevin. Yeah, and I'm sure it's done differently in each agency. For example, when I went to Patrick Air Force Base, it just happened to be at the time they didn't have a warrant board process. And a warrant board means that the contracting officer warrant, you sit before a panel and they ask you questions and, and basically test your judgment. Your yeah, it's like the Inquisition. Yeah, that's depending on the size of the, of the board, it can feel like that. But it, it just coincidentally, I, I, I happened to be in the, in the position of uh, writing the, the policies behind it because I worked in the policy office there for about eight months. Ooh, coincidentally, I ended up doing my... I guess, ironically, I ended up being one of the people that sat on the board for my warrant for the policy that I wrote. So it was kind of ironic. How <laughs> but not every, not every agency has a warrant board. Some do, some don't. So but the, the, point of the, the, really the point of this exercise is that different 
agencies are going to have different procedures. And that's important to understand because it's delegated to, through agency procedures. So that's why, here's the reason you care. That's why an Air Force contracting officer with 10 years experience is probably just going to have, they've been exposed to more things than someone who worked in a smaller, like the Railroad Retirement Fund. He's not buying as much stuff. He doesn't have 50 other contracting officers to talk to. He just doesn't have, he or she doesn't have as much exposure to things. So when you kind of figure out why are contracting officers different, this is one of the reasons is that it's not a blanket standard that applies to the whole U.S. government. It's by agency procedures. Right. Now I want to take a a minute and explain why COs are, we we use the term CO, but you'll hear all kinds of different terms. You'll, You'll hear PCO, ACO, TCO. To describe different, it, what that does is it describes different types of contracting officers and what they do. Uh, PCO is procuring or procurement contracting officer. ACO is administrative contracting officer. TCO, terminating contracting officer. PCO is is the person that that that's out there buying things, doing source selections. Administrating contracting officers have authority delegated to them to do certain functions, and it's either delegated by uh, the regulations or spe- in specifically. Uh, in writing that they can be de- delegated certain functions and they take care of after the contract is issued, they take care of, of, of managing it and, and modifying it as, as a, as a long-term program goes along. And if you're just buying commodities, there's usually not an ACO. You might not even hear those terms. You just hear CO. Yeah. And, and uh, an example of an ACO is like a $1 billion program that I worked at in Colorado Springs that we awarded the contract. We we managed the obligation of funds for for doing the the phased array phased array radar work, but as far as managing the contract and making sure that the earned value management systems were working, making sure that that the contractor was getting paid on time, making sure we were getting credits for early payments, making sure that all of the reports were being done, they were actually in some cases in the plant. So the the administrative contracting right. officer was delegated the authority to manage the contract after I put stuff on it. Right. So hopefully that makes it a little bit clearer, but you're right. That's a term that most people wouldn't even hear if you're not working on something that's half a billion dollar contract. Right. And the last one I mentioned TCO terminating contracting officer, specifically if a program's going badly and requires prolonged negotiations to, to terminate and come to a termination settlement, someone might be given a title of a terminating contracting officer where all they do is go through that, that termination so, and, and one thing to add to the TCO is that the reason that you, you have kind of a specialized person for that is that FAR Part 49, which is all about terminating, terminating contracts is not easy and it normally isn't cheap for either side. So it's not something that, that you do very often. So for example, combined, you and I have 30 years of experience in contracts and I never actually terminated a contract. I threatened to a couple of times because of performance issues, but I never actually terminated one thing. <laughs> So that what they found, and that's the reason that the TCO was kind of developed and there, there, there probably aren't that many of them. In fact, I think there were like maybe one or two people that did this at Wright-Patterson. And it's a specialized skill. And if you have a lot of contracts and you potentially have to, to be uh, terminating them on a regular basis, you want somebody who specializes in it. But more often than not, that's just not somebody you're going to run into. And quite honestly, if you're having good contracts, it's not somebody you're going to need. To add to the confusion... Sometimes a contracting officer is called a KO instead of a CO. Well, why is that? So those of you who are Army, you understand that, that CO means commanding officer. 
So the simple explanation is that certain agencies, for example, Army and Special Operations Command, <laughs> refer to CO, it referred to what we call a CO. As There's already a, a CO. It was used. Exactly. It was already taken. You know, they, yeah. they had dibs on that. So you know, the reason this is important is that if you're approaching a contracting officer at, say, Special Operations Command and you refer to them as a CO, you obviously don't know their agency very well. So, and, and by the way, that's what I did when I first showed up there and coming from the Air Force, I just, the terms I grew up with was CO. Yeah. So just as a heads up that you need to know the difference, if, particularly if you're targeting an agency and showing that you know their stuff. All right. Another naming thing that you may hear, you may hear contracting officer. Instead of that, someone may be referred to as a contracting specialist or a contract specialist or a contract negotiator or even a buyer. And what that means is that they're, they're a contracts professional but they don't have a warrant. They, they don't have the authority to obligate the government by themselves. So that's, that's what you start at. When you enter the field, you're usually a contract specialist or a contract negotiator, and you, you do all the same things, but you don't actually sign the contract. So not everyone that has authority to buy has to be a contracting officer, right? Correct. And one of the ways that government is trying to simplify the acquisition process, say it that way, is through what's called a micro-purchase. And a micro-purchase is normally below $3,000. So in other words, that's a government credit card. If somebody has a government credit card, they walk down to, I don't know, Staples, and they're buying a desk. You know, it's stupid examples. But th those are the kind of things that the, the government employees and active duty military are actually encouraged to get this delegated authority. So while on one hand, the, you know, the cynical side of that is, well, that's the stuff that makes the news. You know, that's the story of the guy that went and like, you know, bought himself a, a, a diamond ring for $2,000 with his government credit card. I'm like, okay, that stuff happens. And it, that's unfortunate. But the reality is that for the thousands and thousands he of He probably people, didn't buy himself a diamond ring. Maybe okay, well, bought yeah. it for an engagement ring. You know, anyway, go <laughs> <Bad> on. Bad example. <laughs> I'm, I'm off my game today with my analogies. But the idea is that there's just so many things the government buys that is under $3,000 that it's just much more efficient to use a government credit card and just risk the fact that, okay, we're going to have a little bit of waste there. And I know that as a taxpayer, that kind of makes you, makes you cringe. But I mean, think about it. We're talking billions of dollars here. Right. So like 1% of a, of a, or even a thousandth of a percent of a billion dollars is what it would cost to manage this. Because here's the other way this, this used to go. Before government credit cards, that meant if you wanted to buy a box of pencils, you would have a contracting officer do it. <laughs> So imagine how you talk about government being slow. <laughs> that would really be slow. Right. So now they, they've made it much more efficient. So this is one of the ways that, that the contracting environment has gotten more efficient. So smaller purchases can be made by government credit card. Yeah, now, there's still a lot of oversight for government credit cards, though. It's not like it's not like you just go out and buy what you want and, and the bill gets paid. And you never have to, to justify anything. There's still work that has to be done for it. So it's not a complete free for all, but it, it is a lot quicker. Correct. And in fact, when I worked at Ray Patterson, one of the guys in my office, his job was to review all the government purchase card transactions. Yeah, I had that so, job once. Did not enjoy it. Couldn't wait to get rid of that. <laughs> but this is an example of it, one of the areas of your, uh, of your industry. And what you sell is, okay, here's a, here's a real example. We bought plaques for people when they were retiring or, or moving to their next office, right? There was a plaque shop right outside of the base. And we would go to that shop and with the government credit, I mean, we're talking like 60 bucks for a plaque. I mean, it's not a, I mean, it's a, it's a custom plaque. It's not a you know, standard thing. It's got their name on it. That kind of cool. It's got the cool logos from where they worked. But I mean, that's a government credit card they're using for that. So the reason this is important is for those people who are out there 
who sell that kind of stuff and are looking to get into the to the government market, understand where you are. It, it, if you're spe- if you're selling things that people can buy with a government purchase card, then you going to the contracting officer to try and get a five year contract through a source selection, it's not <laughs> that's not where you need to be. So this is this is a a, a nuance you could almost have in a whole other podcast about micro purchase processes. Right. But just for the purposes of this meeting or this conversation, the important thing to understand is that. Purchases under three thousand dollars can be made with pe- by me- by people who have a who've been delegated to do that through usually a government purchase card. Okay, that's it for this encore presentation of a very early episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, we invite you to check out the Skyway Community at SkywayMember.com. The Skyway community is the essential resource for anyone at any stage of starting, growing, or running a business with government contracts. We speak GovCon. Whether you're brand new to GovCon, you just got your first contract, or you're already a successful government contractor, being a Skyway community member gives you the edge. To learn more, call us at 877-884-5280 or check us out at skywaymember.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.